Well, uh, I'm coming to really appreciate good storytellers. Uh, people, some people just have the gift. Like, they can capture a room when they tell a story. And I really, like, want to be like those people. And what I'm learning is people who are great storytellers always often have a creative perspective in their story. So uh, one truly depressing book that I could, I don't know if I'm recommending to you. Has anybody read William Faulkner's As I, Li As I Lay Dying? Has anybody read that? That's a really depressing book. And I, it's a horrible book for Christmas. But it, uh, it serves my purpose. Uh, every chapter is, is written from the perspective of a different character in the story. And so Faulkner was just brilliant in giving a different angle at all the same depressing family story. Uh, so there's that. Uh, you know, good storytellers, you think you could take a story like a kid with, who just loves their toys and make a story about their kid and their imagination, but a really brilliant storyteller told the, the story from the opposite perspective of toys who loved this boy and growing up being, belonging to this boy that turned into Toy Story, which is just a brilliant shift of perspective. You could take a really classic piece of cinema like uh, Gone with the Wind, you know, about the South uh, during and before the Civil War. That's written from one perspective, painted in a particular light. And then coming from a different perspective, you could take a movie like 12 Years a Slave, which shows you a very different experience of the world. And oftentimes in the church, when we tell the story of the Bible, tell the story of God, we do it overwhelmingly from a male perspective. Uh, and so you take, you know, go in the Old Testament, you've got the story of Noah, you've got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua. Uh, you go through, go to the prophets, go to the kings, it's all dudes. And you get to the New Testament, overwhelmingly, it's, it's men. We, we, there's Jesus, he has his closest disciples who are named as men, Peter, James, and John. You've got the other nine. Uh, the church is born. You've got Paul, who's called to be an apostle, and Barnabas, and Silas, and Timothy, and Titus. And overwhelmingly, uh, the story is, is presented through the lens of men. But what's so cool is uh, when the New Testament begins in the book of Matthew, it starts with a genealogy. And you start thinking, if you're thinking about it through the lens of men, it's the same old thing. Uh, Abraham begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, man, 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 man. But Matthew, in presenting his gospel, inserted these names of five women. Five women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and a woman who's identified as, as Uriah's wife. Her name is Bathsheba in, in the Old Testament. And each of these women are supposed to be for us like a hyperlink. When we read their story, we're supposed to like click on the name and figure out why are they in there. In a genealogy that's, that's patrilineal, male to male to male to male, why did he break the mold and add these and include the names of these four women? And for the last month at the church at Cornerstone, we've been telling the story of these women. And I'm not going to be able to get into it tonight, but what it does is in introducing these four women, it makes us think back to the whole story of the Bible leading up to the birth of Jesus through the perspective from the point of view of these women. We realize that if we read the Bible through the lens of these women, we start with one man and one woman, Adam and Eve. And to, for, for the women, it all started with Eve. Her name means life, by the way. Uh, Adam and Eve experienced creation in its purest state, unpolluted. They encounter this serpent who's, who's introduced very mysteriously, a lot of questions in the text about what the deal is there. But the serpent lies and misrepresents the nature of God and what God has said to the first man and the first woman. 
And when, when, they believe, when they choose to listen to the serpent, it introduces into the world that was unpolluted and pure uh, uh, chaos. There becomes shame. They realize they're naked and they're ashamed of themselves. Body image issues come in, come in at the very beginning. Uh, there's strain in their relationship. They're, they're, they're not trusting each other. There's strain in their relationship with God. And introduced into the human story is this, is this new element of chaos and brokenness. And things kind of uh, unwind from there. And they face consequences for their choices, for listening to the serpent. For Adam, there were choices. There, there were frustrations in his work. In his relationship with the land, he'd work really hard and sweat his guts out and get less of a yield than he would have, than he would have had things not gone wrong. There's frustrations with work. For Eve, uh, there's frustrations with this desire to have children, to reproduce, and also this pain and the struggle in recreating life and multiplying. There's pain in childbirth. But in Genesis chapter 3, which feels like a lot of bad news to what thus far has been a really good story, God has a, a bit of good news, and this is called, uh, some scholars call it the proto-euangelion. There's a prototype, a quiet version of the gospel that's hidden even in a chapter with such bad news. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God speaks to the serpent who deceived the first woman and the first man. And this is what God says to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity or rivalry between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Gives this picture that one of Eve's offspring is going to come and is going to conquer the serpent who has deceived uh, the first woman and the first man, but he's going to be wounded in the process. He's going to be wounded in the process, and yet ultimately he's going to conquer. And it gives us this picture in Genesis 3 of a wounded victor who will come and establish peace in God's world, eradicate violence and hatred and sin from the human experience. It's going to come through the offspring of the woman, through Eve's line. And so from generation to generation, as you turn the pages of the Bible, like we're going to do next year, we keep looking for Eve's offspring to come, the wounded victor who is to come. And we watch from generation of woman to generation of woman. As, as Sarah welcomes Isaac, we think, is this the one? And as Rebecca welcomes Jacob and Esau, and Rachel and Leah and their, serp and their, their servant girls welcome these 12 sons into the world. But with each generation, we don't see the promise fulfilled. Instead, with each generation, we see the cycle of shame and estrangement in relationships continue. We see this frustration with work. We see this frustration with the process of nurturing new life into the next generations. And just like Adam and Eve struggled as a couple to make ends meet and to care for the kids uh, that, that God gave them, successive generations continued to struggle with finding purpose in work and meaning in work and, and making ends meet and figuring out how to cultivate and nurture the next generation. The cycle of frustration continues. But along with the frustration, God continues to echo these promises, look for the offspring, look for the offspring of Eve. God keeps saying to this family line, I'm going to bless your offspring, I'm going to bless your offspring, and through your seed, your offspring, I'm ultimately going to bless all of the families of the world. And we see in these stories, these women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, they're representative of all these women and all these generations of people who are watching God at work. 
And especially in these four stories, we see the remarkable lengths to which God is willing to go to keep this family line coming. Because at some point there will come an heir of the scarlet thread of this family bloodline. The the offspring of Eve who is going to do what was promised and be the wounded victor and crush the head of the serpent. And as we turn from the last chapter of Malachi over in our Bibles to where it says the New Testament, we come across Matthew chapter 1 where we see this genealogy that is for us a recap of all the generations that have gone before. And we see in this genealogy like a mirror of ourselves. We see in the frustration of these, of these families and their, and, their, and their failure and their sin. We see their estrangement. We see their difficulty making ends meet. We see how fickle they can be and how quick they are to follow other gods. We see ourselves in the story just like we're supposed to do. And it leads our attention to the one who's going to come at the, the end of this bloodline, this wounded victor. And I love how uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible captures the beginning of the story of the arrival. This is from the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is awesome, by the way. It said, everything was ready. The moment that God had been waiting for was here at last. God was coming to help his people just as he promised in the beginning. But how would he come? What would he be like? What would he do? Mountains would have bowed down, seas would have roared, trees would have clapped their hands, but the earth held its breath. As silent as snow falling, he came. And when no one was looking in the darkness, he showed up. There's a young girl who was engaged to a man named Joseph. Joseph was the great, 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 great grandson of King David. And one morning, this girl was minding her own business when suddenly a great warrior of light appeared right there in her bedroom. He was Gabriel, and he was a messenger, an angel from heaven. And when she saw the tall, shining man standing there, she was frightened. He said, you don't need to be scared, Gabriel said. God is very happy with you. Mary looked around to see if perhaps he was talking to somebody else, Mary Gabriel said, and he laughed with such gladness that Mary's eyes filled with sudden tears. Mary, you're going to have a baby, a baby boy. You'll call him Jesus. He's God's own son. He's the one. He's the rescuer. The God who flung planets into space and kept them whirling around and around. The God who made the universe with just a word. The one who could do anything at all made himself small. And he was coming into the world as a baby. Wait, God was sending a baby to rescue the world? But it's too wonderful, Mary said, and she felt her heart beating hard. How can it be true? Is anything too wonderful for God, Gabriel asked. So Mary trusted God more than what her eyes could see, and she believed. I'm God's servant, she said. Whatever God says, I'm going to do it. And soon enough, it was just as the angel had said, nine months later, Mary was almost ready to have the baby. Now, Mary and Joseph had to take a trip to Bethlehem to the town King David was from, but when they reached the little town, they found that every room in the inns were full. Every bed was taken. Go away, the innkeeper told him. There isn't any place for you. Where would they stay? Soon Mary was going to have the baby. They couldn't find anywhere except an old tumble-down stable, so they stayed where the cows and the donkeys and the horses stayed. And there, in the stable, 
amongst the chickens and the donkeys and the cows in the quiet of the night, God gave the world his wonderful gift. The baby that would change the world was born, his baby son. Mary and Joseph wrapped him up to keep him warm, made a soft bed of straw, and they used the animal's feeding trough as his cradle. And they gazed in wonder at God's great gift, wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And Mary and Joseph named him Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God has come to live with us because, of course, he had. Just as Eve gave, and, and, and Adam, through their sin, gave birth to chaos into the world, so God chose another woman, Mary, to give birth to the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus who had come as the wounded victor, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, Taking on the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow down in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, the wounded victor, the one who was wounded for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And from Eve to Mary, and all those generations in between, God was faithful in sending the offspring that he promised, the wounded victor, the one who was broken so that we could be made whole, the one who emptied himself so that we could be filled, the one who gave up his life so that we might pick up ours and find true life in him. From brokenhearted Eve, we look to the hope that's nascent in the life of Mary, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, eternally existing with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. All along, God knew what he was willing to do to rescue the world that he loved. And in this strange and unremarkable town with this unremarkable couple, he came. And he who came so humbly will come again to renew and restore all things. And in a world that feels a lot like the other side of the first Christmas, where we're still waiting for the offspring to come and finally crush the head of the serpent, we need that reminder that he who is faithful in the past will be faithful in the future, and we can hang tight and hold on to hope. Let's pray together. Jesus, we, we love you. When you came from the beginning, you're so different than the way that we would have orchestrated it. In your, in your birth, you came humbly. You appeared first to shepherds, to those who were socially negligent. In your life and in your ministry, Jesus, you were always just going to the, the beat of your own drummer, so different. So blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And in your being, you attracted people that the, the religious folks weren't attracting. 
The tax collectors loved you. The prostitutes loved you. The notorious sinners loved you because they found in you grace and truth embodied in a man. Jesus, you are the man. You are the heir of Eve. You are the wounded victor, the one who was to come, through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Thank you that you have come, and we put our hope in the, in the truth that you will come again. I pray tonight as we consider this story that is so familiar that you would refresh and renew it in our hearts, that we might fall more deeply in love with Jesus Christ and give ourselves more fully to serving him and walking with him for our whole lives. And for those who have never trusted in you, I pray that even through something as simple and sweet as the lighting of a candle, you might light a fire in their hearts of faith in you. Thank you for your great love, Lord Jesus, and we just say that we love you in return.